Hello and welcome to another Rip Roared episode of Art and Labor. I'm Lucia Love. And I'm OK Fox. And we are joined here by a very special, super awesome guest. <laughs> yeah, we are. We're joined by um, Andy uh, Gillitz from uh, the Antifada and uh, author of I Want to Believe, Posadism, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism. Thanks, Andy, for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I hope this will be rip-roaring. I'll it will be rip-roaring. Oh, I, I, so I don't excited. know what rip-roaring means. It's like one of those things that people say. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually know what it means either. Uh, I think it means maybe like time and space will get a tear in it, and then mm. the sound will be like, really uh mm. kind of physical yeah <laughs> like you'll feel the sound in your chest <laughs> i i thought it was like you pull a rip cord on a lawnmower or on a, a like a boat engine but yeah no could, off of a plane be, it could be off a, of a plane a, a plane yeah I've pulled the rip cord and then oh and jump you, out of it's a like plane? let's go it, that's what it is it's like yeah. rip roaring is like the rip cord is the thing on your parachute I think so. So this this episode is going to be like a plane crash, and we're going to have to yes. bail ourselves out. But we will survive. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's it's great to hear from you, Andy. Um, uh, I know Lucia's like totally in, engrossed in your book, and oh yeah, uh, I, I'm only about halfway through, but I also think it's amazing. <laughs> oh, thanks for reading it. <laughs> Yeah, um, it's been very exciting to uh, track the way that your thesis develops. That's sort of like, well, I don't want to, I don't know. I mean, I guess like I just I just finished your book and, and everything's sort of still swirling around, but it seems like there was this effort to track these movements and then to say there's sort of like an element of practicality and an element of, of absurdity in all revolution, but it's something mm -hmm. that Posadas um, was able to like illuminate for people through this really heightened performance of like trying to be a real uh, trot. <laughs> yeah. I think that's pretty well put is like the, the, the things that people kind of make fun of him for, uh, I mean, specifically the the apocalyptic stuff, the catastrophism. There is an element of that in in the history of revolutionary Marxism, and I think people like Posadas. Like, they're not making fun of him for this. I think they like him because he kind of really leans into it and says, like, everything needs to be destroyed and changed. And the idea of that happening through nuclear war is not something you can really get behind. But I think the people who meme him uh, sort of. Ad have adopted it in their own way to what needs to happen now, which is basically, you know, we can't just transition from this world as it exists into something better. Like we have to really, it has to be like a major foundational change. Yeah. And, and you, and you, yeah, it's scary. scary. And, and like, and it shows like in his like kind of tenacity for the transitional program um, that like, he was very like, and, and like his like a serious dedication to like organizing uh, on the factory floor that like he is like it's like it's like with the memes itself like it's it's um sort of a joke but it's also sort of true and i think um that comes out like like you like you talk about this like um the meme of like the 
uh, gay space luxury communism is, and uh, I think you very appropriately link it to um, the way uh, young people are kind of forced to think about a better world because even like the modest types of reforms that, um, you know, a lot of people in our generation, but all generations have been sort of fighting for are just like, not coming to fruition at all. <laughs> so why not shoot for the literal moon and stars? Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous to think that we're going to vote our way out of this <laughs> or like we'll get, you know, the squad will just get bigger until we have democratic socialism or that we can pack the courts or, absolutely, uh, you know, any, any of these, even like very radical reforms like UBI or, uh, I don't know, like breaking up the country like, or, you know, expanding the franchise. Like it's just, it's, it's, these are solutions that are not commensurate to the problems that we have. And I think young people understand that uh, instinctively, at least better than people older than us. You know, I think we're like the millennials are the ones who kind of get it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it, it is, it is as, uh, fantastical to believe that we could uh, like electorally make our way to like the revolutionary change we need. Um, uh, you know. Well, I think, I think one of the things that was really clear about like looking at the entire ecosystem of all of these movements is not necessarily just like guys, like electoralism is stupid and revolution is necessary. It's more like, wow, we're in such a bind that it's not really clear what actions are going to save us from the actual apocalypse that we're now being uh, saddled with. And it's it's like the, the, the whole thing about having a nuclear sort of Holocaust <laughs> situation is actually now just replaced with this sort of, um, you know, collapsing... Uh, ecology and we don't know how to usher in a communism that would save us but it's like oh maybe you know maybe the apocalypse comes and then the communism comes or maybe the aliens come and then the communism comes but like we actually don't know where the dream is supposed to insert itself and to become reality well that's something that i implied my take on i don't know if i stated it outright but the the problem with Pisaris's catastrophism is that it's this sudden thing that happens in the future like you know and he he thought it was going to happen any day um but it never did and in reality the catastrophe uh is just has been here and continues to be here and so people who talk about like we have this amount of time to save the world from climate change like, I don't think that works because we're already in a world that is dis being destroyed in so many ways. And it never is going to be something that just happens in the future. It's happening right now. And similarly, this is why the way Marx talks about communism is not something that happens in the mm -hmm. future. It's, you know, he, I, he says different things in different places, but he also describes it as the real movement that abolishes the present state of things, not the society that we establish through whatever, you know, it's, it's something that we do yeah. now. Um, and if the catastrophe is here now, then we should probably figure out how to survive within it now. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it, and maybe this is a good time to go into sort of the uh, the beginnings of like how Posadas came to be for everybody who's maybe listening and only knows the uh, revised edition of like getting the information through the memes. <laughs> um, because, it, I, you know, for me, I guess I talked about it in previous episodes. I was really, uh, I was kind of amazed to find that, uh, you know, what his Cristalli, yep. he, he um, organized, uh, his, he was a soccer player and he organized like the other soccer players. He was um, working, what was his shoes? Like, making yeah. shoes and organizing all of these shoemakers. He was actually legitimately doing this uh, sort of like tactics that we all would understand. And then at some point he kind of took a turn into this like cult territory. Yeah. Yeah. He, he um, actually, he, he, his parents were actually anarchists. They were part of the uh, Fora, which was the anarchist union in Argentina. Um, and, and for the first uh, few years of his life, you know, uh, they were the most important union in Argentina. Like, really, the the workers' movement was very revolutionary and totally against this idea of Argentinian nationalism that was brand new and wanted to, you know, take over Argentina as a region governed by workers with, you know, no state. Uh, around, the, you know, his adolescence, the the four that kind of anarchism sort of gave way to socialism and bolshevism you know a lot of the anarchists became bolsheviks his dad became a uh, a member of the socialist party and so he grew up as as a uh, militant in the socialist party working for the socialist youth and uh, but he always kind of had this uh really uh kind of anarchist spirit that his his dad maybe imparted to him or more of a revolutionary spirit, I should say. Um, although he did always have a soft spot for anarchism. And I think that made him really uh, a keen observer of what was going on in Spain in the mid-30s with the Civil War, where he really supported the revolutionary elements of the Civil War, uh, not just to bring liberal democracy to Spain, but to to win the Civil War and, and have a, a new society um, out of that. And th- that kind of sentiment uh, led the the Trotskyists, they weren't called Trotskyists yet, but the small circle of Argentinian proto-Trotskyists to, to see him as someone that they could uh, recruit and help, um, you know, have a bridge to the working class because they were mostly poets and artists and intellectuals. Uh, so that's how he became a Trotskyist. They, like, found one of his poems in a, a newspaper about the Spanish Civil War. <laughs> and then was that sort of at the time when he was having conversations with people and finding that there was a split between theory and praxis. It's sort of like, Oh, I, you know, man, I'm having these conversations with people, but they're referencing so much. I, I don't know where I'm supposed to stand in this conversation or. You know, it's hard. I don't know what his mindset was at the time. Uh, writing about it later, he made those criticisms that like the, the Trotskyists were all, you know, aristocrats and bourgeois and bohemian, and he was the real worker. Mm. Right. Um, I, but I, I imagine at the time he was like really excited to meet these people and to be taken in by them. And he, he certainly was a very, he was very obedient to them um, 
from when he was recruited around 1935. And so when he left the Trotskyist International in 1960, he was... indisputably, you know, people never thought that he was like a great theorist or, you know, a brilliant Marxist or anything, but everyone said he was incredibly competent, obedient, loyal, uh, and just a very a good energetic. He was organizer. the organizer for all these artists, like who didn't have a foot into like the working class. Um, uh, so it's like, it, it seems like he was, he, he was like that perspective for, for them, um, which, uh, I think makes sense that it, um, uh, that like they, they both, like both these like movements, like influenced each other in these like weird ways. And, um, yeah, and I was, I was thinking about like the, the, uh, proto Trotskyists, like, like, um, the, the different names that you listed, I, I, I like, under, I remember underlining that pass passage, like Bolshevik Leninists, left socialists or revolutionary Marxists, like all these different right. like tendencies, they couldn't, uh, quite work out. It's like, it had nothing has changed there. I feel like. <laughs> yeah. And it seemed like Trotskyism was kind of the slur against them. And at some point they're just like, okay, we're Trotskyists. Fine. <laughs> And you right. talk about like Carl Sagan bringing um, Trotsky's uh, uh, book about um, what was the book called? I just forgot it. Um, the, the history of the, history of the Russian, Russian Revolution. Revolution. Trotsky's. Yeah, he is <laughs> a really incredible thing to find is that because he always, you know, winked at being a socialist, but I never got the sense. I, I just got the sense that he was a sympathizer, right. you know. Um, but then I found th- this passage in, in his book that he, he wrote uh, with his wife. Um, that they would smuggle uh, banned Trotskyist literature into the Soviet Union for their counterparts. And they said it was just like just an anti-censorship gesture. But it kind (laughs) of seems like he might have been a Trotskyist. I don't know. There's no evidence for that. And his wife, Andrurian, um, was a supporter of the Brecht Forum, which is a Marxist uh, social center and education project in New York. So that was just like a weird synchronicity. It feels like like the in the New York we've like talked about this on the show before like the New York institutions during that time like um like had a lot more like open marxism and I think like um in more recent years like there's um like in it, there's like a a clear effort um to like uh dismiss like particularly like marxist economists from um academic institutions uh and uh so it's like i think it's like hard to imagine like a a a different um a a different like academic sphere that actually allowed for these types of debates like you know everything is like completely uh liberal washed or whatever now yeah i think you you do hear that argument a lot that in the before Marxism was like really permitted in the academy to the extent that it is now, um, that it was kind of just more in the air, you know, like people who were critical of the mm-hmm. Cold War or or critical of imperialism in the fifties and sixties, for example, would just naturally look at the look to the USSR as the alternative, uh, or or to China or Cuba or Vietnam, and then arguably the new left kind of changed that to where Marxism like moved more into the academy and social struggle moved more into, 
the academy. I don't know if I subscribe to that entirely, but certainly you, I, I don't think, uh, I, I think that this idea of people calling themselves communists or Marxists and, and sympathizing with like Stalin, for instance, or, you know, really going to bat for Castro when the media still has this line of like, he, oh, he's a monster. He killed a billion people or whatever is, is a new phenomenon. And you really have to look back to the sixties to see yeah. when people were talking that way. Cause there was kind of this, this gap of Marxism, not really being a serious political project. It was more like an academic thing for, for a while between, I don't know, the eighties and now. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, it's, there's the twenties and thirties when people were able to agitate and then going into war efforts and sort of finding then McCarthyism. And then like, I don't know, I was just thinking Milton Friedman was, had such an influence on, uh, economics, you know, it was like, hi, I'm, I'm the, I'm the figure that's popularizing the conversation and I'm not a Marxist. So what are you going to do? Um, but it's interesting to note, like, uh, the lead up to the 60s, I think, uh, within this timeline that you're uh, discussing um, with, like, uh, Cristale, uh, who takes on the name Jay Posadas, because it was what well, it was um, in 1968, he ended up uh, writing the uh, the essay, like, Flying Saucers, which I, I don't know if that's the if that's the sort of seminal thing but it seems like that's what he's uh, known for now is like here's this revolutionary moment where all of these uh all these movements are coalescing and then he's like yeah guys also aliens are going to come from outer space and it's going to be ufo is nurse for our sin planet (laughs) sorry right i think I think uh, he. I tried to connect like why that why that happened at during that time. Like why did because this is the first thing they published on UFOs and uh, pretty much the last as well. And it happened, you know, in the spring of '68 that they published it. And the the conclusion that I draw is that uh, basically throughout the '60s, and this is true of all Trotskyism, but particularly the Posadist branch of Trotskyism. The working class core that made Trotskyism a very relevant movement began to uh, defect and and collapse. So coming into the 60s, Posadas had a lot of cadres throughout Latin America in key industries and the military. You know, uh, he was like leading a guerrilla war in Guatemala. They were involved in Cuba and Mexico and Brazil. You know, they were they were important movement, not huge, but important. And throughout the 60s, his style of, uh, his megalomaniacal style really concerned the base of the movement. Groups started to defect. They moved more towards new left positions that Trotskyism in general was by and large opposed to, you know? So when 68 comes along, uh, uh, Posadism and Trotskyism in general is, doesn't really see it as how we see it now, or they were largely opposed to it, especially like the, you know, the Prague Spring and things like that, you know, Posadas denounces that a lot of the other Trotskyists do as well. Um, they saw what was going on in Paris initially as just like a petty bourgeois student movement. And then, of course, it generalizes to the working class and a general strike. And then they have to like kind of catch up with it. 
but they're just too late. Like they're, they, they just, and this was really the moment Trotskyists were waiting for was this international uh, working class revolt that was called itself socialism on both sides of the, of the iron curtain. But since it was kind of bohemian and, and led by the youth, these more orthodox Trotskyists or weren't really able to, to understand it for what it was. And, and it just passed them by like, the Posadists really had no success during 68 and very few other Trotskyist groups did either. Mm. And so, and yeah, so like basically that irrelevance leads you to kind of obsess on the finer details of dialectical materialism or whatever. So they were reading like physics and talking about space and stuff. And that's where the UFO essay comes from is the fact that they kind of had time to talk about these theoretical things that they felt were very important because they thought they were very important. But really, when they put it out there, people just kind of laughed at them and made fun of them. Mm-hmm. Even though I do think it is like the best essay they ever wrote. <laughs> he ever wrote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it, you know it's kind of interesting to to look at the history of ufology um, outside of the communist uh, appropriation mm-hmm. of it, where people are developing a narrative at this point around the unidentified flying objects that they're seeing and they're tagging it sort of to the military and they're like, yeah, there, you know, there there are these areas where all of these undisclosed happenings are going on. And um, you know, it's I don't know what tendency ufologists would fall under, but it seems like they're definitely um, trying to stoke some like anti-government sentiment by harping on this sort of like secret keeping aspect of everything. And then to see this flip side of it turned as like, no, actually we're missing the point here. If there are UFOs, they could be from um, alien civilizations and there's a potential for us to actually exceed our um solidarity to space right that's that was a position that the Posadists took that if there is a civilization that can visit us they're obviously far more advanced than us and more advanced than us means yeah. communism uh, like automation uh, or like what that's what we would understand as communism and this is basically what carl sagan said as well with uh joseph sklovsky in intelligent life in the universe uh and this is you know, the premise of Star Trek <laughs> as well. So th- this was kind of the consensus in a way is that uh, UFOs probably are observing us. You know, uh, they see that we're on the brink of nuclear war. Uh, they're waiting for, they want to send us a message that like there's a better way. And people said that they're probably waiting until they see it as safe or that we're ready to receive them. Uh, this was you know, there's a lot, there's, you know, obviously a million different theories. This was kind of like the one that was broadly accepted. And even today that, that weird article about the former Israeli yes. security chief who, uh, <laughs> yes. who, who said that Trump knows about the aliens, he, he basically put forward the same theory. So that's, that's still what a lot of people think. Um, but then it, it did kind of get turned in like a dark direction with, communion and stories about abductions and cattle mutilations, the movie independence day and stuff like that, you know, aliens became, uh, perceived as a threat in, in, uh, in media and the Posadists, specifically Dante Minazzoli, who is really the, the big UFO enthusiast of the group 
warned that this would be um, disinfo from the from the imperialist powers to justify increased military budgets in order to after the fall of the Soviet Union, he thought like they're going to need justification for the military budget, so they're going to ma- manufacture aliens as a threat. Oh my god. Um, and you could argue that that is a little bit of what the government's doing yeah. with these <laughs> disclosures of UFO videos is, you know, yeah. it's clearly being leaked in an intentional way. It's not whistleblowers doing it. You know, Tom DeLong works with If it's the coming from Israel. And, <laughs> and so when it, it comes out in the New York Times that, oh, there are UFO, and the, you, you should notice that this is coming out like every yeah, during, month throughout. or two. Like they launder yeah. the same. And it's, it's usually just the same stories, like the same three videos over and over again. There's like a new story about it. I think it's to, I think it's my theory that the military sees this as a way of gaining some legitimacy, that they don't just uh, commit genocide. They, they also um, keep us threat, keep us safe from like threats, but we're, oh yeah, what they are we threatened by? So we have to see <laughs> things in the sky and talk right. about it years later. <laughs> That's how I perceive it as just, a propaganda campaign. Yeah, I think they're they're kind of on the the losing end of the like defund arguments, and because I think it it has become an increasingly more mainstream position to be to be like all of the shit we have um, would just it destroy the entire planet, uh, like you know, fifty times over. Uh, we really don't need to be doing this. <laughs> uh, and and so they they do need to like find ways. To justify it, and I do also think there's parallels um, to QAnon stuff because um, often, uh, you know, those types of like uh, deep deep state conspiracies get lumped into to UFO. Um, uh, yeah, UFO, UFOs are are um, what's the word like synonymous with uh, conspiracy, and uh, it, it if if like, you know, uh, it's similar to what what's happening with Q, where there is like obvious like um, government actors uh, uh, like spreading disinformation through these forums. Like, it's it's tough because it's like you you get into this like I I, I fall into this all the time. Like trying trying to parse um, like the different informational sources um, and like what some people perceive as legitimate. I personally don't like, you know, like to me, I can look at like a a CNN article and be like, this is a fucking press release. (laughs) This is not journalism. Uh, And uh, you know, uh, a liberal will be like, are you a Trump supporter? What are you talking about? (laughs) You know? Um, uh, Sorry. I'm just sort of ranting, but, um, there, I think there are a lot of like parallels to what was happening, um, as far as like UFO conspiracies and like whatever conspiracies, political conspiracies people are grappling with now. Right. Yeah. And the, the Posadas tried to intervene, not the Posadas International, but Minizoli and, and Schultz, two, two, uh, important members of the group who after Posadas' death, they both became ufologists full time and they, tried to let the UFO community know that if we do want to, uh, you know, enter the galactic community, 
and show the the extraterrestrials that it's safe that we have to unify as a species get rid of war you know create socialism essentially and uh and that's a that's a good message to spread <laughs> yeah. yeah but also this was a time when the ufo community was really being uh also intervened by ex-military people and very like conservative right. like right-wingers right-wing cranks and stuff um new age people now like kind of have really taken over so i think q there is a similarity in QAnon in the sense that there are aspects of QAnon that are not as bad as other conspiracy subcultures like for example they think that like jfk was going to end the cold war and make peace with <laughs> the soviet union and with cuba and that the cia killed him to stop that from happening and that Trump making peace with North Korea today is like evidence that he's in yeah, that. Yeah, there are people who think of, Trump is an anti-imperialist, right? <laughs> right, including the Posadists, but not, uh, to an yeah. extent, the the contemporary Posadists have written that Trump fulfills some functions of an anti-imperialist in certain ways, which is interesting. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you mentioned a little bit of that in the epilogue, which I love how like contemporary everything ends up being. Um, I was wondering how, how you guys think, just speaking of sort of like our turn back to the extraterrestrial this year, really, there's been so much sort of flooding the news, like, oh, here's all of this grainy footage again. Uh, here's Israel and Trump and, you know, everybody we know about aliens. We don't know about aliens. Who's keeping the secret about the aliens. And then there's these monoliths popping up all over the place. And um, I don't know. I just, I just think it's kind of interesting the way that people are handling the phenomena, because there's on the one hand, uh, you know, the, the monolith that's in Utah where everybody goes and tries to take a selfie with it until it's taken down. And then there was um, a couple of other monoliths, but there was one in California that also was recently discovered by a bunch of alt-right dudes. And their response to it was to say, aliens are not welcome here, whether they're from another country or from space. And so they made a video of themselves taking the monolith down and chanting Christ is King. Oh man. Yeah. Those guys suck. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like mind boggling. <laughs> it's just like, it blew my mind. And then, you know, I mean, of course, the rest of the story where they're getting um, tracked by some people who are uh, maybe Antifa. And so the really big, tough Nazis uh, run and Sorry, hide. I tried to squeeze this in before, right. but like the, the UFO is nurse for our sin planet meme is like one of my favorite memes. Um, and it has a, a, a particular Christian bent that I feel like these alt-right guys should be adopting. <laughs> I haven't heard that meme. What is the it was like um, somebody graffitied it, um, it like a little like, and they would graffiti it in different places, and people would find them and, and take pictures. It was like a Tumblr meme in like 2012 or something. <laughs> hmm. uh, uh, well, you know the I think all the alien stuff that's popping up now, including the monolith, is is, is clickbait. Mm. Like, it, well, we no isn't it that, that Lucia? Isn't alien. it that Zwerner artist who does the the mirror monoliths exactly like that? Well, that was kind of what 
made me start looking at it because there was a debate about if it was a John McCracken, but the way that he constructs surfaces, he would never have used rivets. Yeah, it looked a little different. Not likely. Didn't it turn out Um, to be a like a Ford ad or something? (laughs) Yeah, it was. It was something. Just it was some (laughs) bullshit. But, but I mean, back to um, Andy, you saying that it's clickbait. I totally agree. But for me, it's just interesting to note the tenor of the clickbait because they could have easily been like, Kim Kardashian really likes Oreos. Oh, my God. But instead, it's like, no, everyone, there's something here. There's secrets everywhere. What's yeah. happening? Yeah, yeah. It's a, there, there is like a it does play on these instincts to uh to see like a a deeper truth or a hidden truth or something outside of the mundane reality that will get clicks and get people excited for like a day or two um and it it performs multiple functions obviously it's not just clickbait like there was a, a story a couple months ago where some researchers into venus's uh atmosphere found a a kind of chemical that um, it is produced on Earth by organic life. So they framed their research as there's life on Venus or like the only way we can explain why this chemical is in the atmosphere is there's life on Venus. And, you know, you have to have some sympathy for them because they, they're doing this research that no one will care about unless they throw something like that in there. Right. <laughs> uh, and and then indeed they get attention or like NASA saying oh, we found something on the moon. You know you know which one And then the whole weekend we have to like figure right. out what's on the moon and it uh, it turns out it's water that we kind of knew was there. The, anyway. the one that worked on me like cuz I definitely had an interest in in UFOs and uh and stuff when I was younger. The one that like really worked on me was the life form they discovered that's arsenic based. <laughs> I just <laughs> Like the bacteria. Yeah, it was like it was like in this weird uh, pit of water somewhere. I this was like years ago. I can't remember it now, but it was like the potential of like a life form not based on nitrogen and instead based in on arsenic is like like that was like that was like the one where I'm like, huh, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's okay, a number of like a, a, of extreme oh. files. They're called like uh, organisms that live that have been found in places on Earth that theoretically they should not be able to live and exist. And so in astrobiology, uh, it's thought that, you know, like astrobiology has a lot of like, well, where are Earth-like conditions in uh, in the solar system or in other solar systems that we can expect that life could exist. But just from looking at Earth, we we can find life existing in, in conditions that it shouldn't exist. So... That that leads to this theory that yeah maybe there's life on Venus even though we can't even conceive of what that could be like you know uh, or or life on Mars like organisms on Mars it, it's possible but these it's it's a totally it's like a kind of science that's just sci-fi because we don't know we we have no besides those rocks that have like little wormy <laughs> things in it we haven't seen any evidence of life outside of Earth right yeah it can only be a mathematical prediction where we look at sort of like oh if there's x amount of solar systems then probably some arrangement like ours could exist but um i think you know 
I guess circling back around to the to the sort of historical document that is interwoven in all of these um, theoretical uh, flights, like uh, you know, I think I think it um, maybe it's interesting to me that there was a moment where it's like you know. Posadas is there in the fourth international and they're going and they're like country hopping. And um, there's, there's so many kind of struggles breaking out everywhere at the same time. Um, And it's like, uh, there are moments where, uh, you know, Che Guevara splits with Castro over the interest in the fourth international and the Posadas and like, you know, these moments where this group um, who is is like uh, kind of um, fostering these these intergalactic ideas is also they're also interacting with all of these narratives that we know so well and haven't really like seen the connections to. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure where you want me to go with that. <laughs> Oh, I was just thinking, like, uh, to go back into the sort of, like, earthly plane, because it's like, okay, here's these guys, and they're talking about uh, UFOs, and everyone's like, oh, wow, what's what's happening in space? And then meanwhile, um, you know, at one point, Posadas has to, like, run away, I think, to Paris to survive, and then is like, okay, all you guys have to stay in Argentina and hold the the home front, and there's there's just struggles breaking out everywhere. And I think it's kind of interesting as uh, like um, what is really going on. <laughs> it's not being addressed. <laughs> well, I think after the, the international collapses in the mid sixties, it becomes like a small leadership cult, you know, without, without that working class base, it's just a collection of militants. And like you said, some of them were, were in South America uh, and uh, like in, in conditions where military dictatorships, anti-communist dictatorships were taking power. So they had to work underground. A lot of them died, were killed, tortured. And then in Europe, Posadas goes to Rome, actually sets, sets up the, the international headquarters in Rome um, after he's uh, arrested in Uruguay. And uh, the, the Posadists in Europe uh, are younger. Um, they kind of, never really knew who Posadas was. Like some of them met him, but he was kind of this larger than life mythic figure. They, I think a lot of them thought that he was kind of like a Che Guevara kind of figure. Like he, cause he talked up their role in Cuba and Guatemala. Um, and so they were kind of, they, they were devoted to him more than they were devoted to Trotskyism or to Marxism. Um, and throughout the seventies, he, stopped uh thinking of his of the movement as this you know working class vanguard party uh that would someday you know lead the international proletariat revolution and started thinking of it as like a think tank to influence higher powers namely the soviet union the the red army china yugoslavia he he wanted the worker states to know what he was saying and thinking and so he had his militants kind of uh, become like a less less like activists or organizers and more um, you know people who would transmit his ideas like send his papers around translate them um, and uh, and part of that was making sure that this small team of his 
uh, was was synchronized with him in this kind of organic way where like he was the brain, everyone else was the body and everyone kind of had to more or less live like him, be entirely obedient to him. And this is when it really becomes a cult. And it always kind of was, uh, but it had this strange structure in the sixties where there was a cult leader, but your cadre could kind of do what it wanted to do and live how it wanted to live as it, as he gained more control in the sixties and into the seventies, you really had to live the revolutionary morality of Posadas, which was supposed to be how people were going to live under communism, uh, which had a lot of uh, sp- specifically sexual hangups where you could not have sex uh, out of wedlock. Um, marriages and uh, having children had to be approved. Uh, certainly it had to be heterosexual um, and uh, and Posadas for a while had this very like ascetic attitude towards sex and food and sleeping. But at some point uh, he got rid of his wife uh, in a very ugly incident and uh, started uh, dating a younger member of the movement and had a child with her. Classic and then there's cult a, there's leadership. Some evidence. Yeah. There's some yeah. evidence he did this again right before he died in 1981. Uh, so it's not such a fun story at that point, but it is an important part of of seeing how power works like that when just one kind of crazy guy, you know, f- for all of the good things about him, uh, how, how good an organizer he was and how visionary he was, how committed he, you know, when you give one guy that much power, that same thing always seems to happen. Yeah, it, it reminds me of his like early opinions on like... Um on the on the new left was wasn't he sort of like against like the like free love like it i think that's like a classic sort of disconnect um between the old and new left is like a conservative view on uh on like love and sex um but then it's 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 you know ironic of course later in his life he just he totally goes goes off but <laughs> right yeah he uh he 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 thought that in communism we wouldn't have sex anymore or like it would be like really a minimum that we wouldn't have to eat as much as we do uh that there would be no jokes all right no jokes um, a funny one you know so he, he had this vision of communism that was like very different from how we live now uh and it was informed by uh, a kind of hegelian unity of subject and object um, and it was a very mystical vision, but also it, it kind of has its sense in the way Marxism is sometimes talked about in, in this kind of messianic sense. Uh, but he was, the, he was one of the few people who was like really trying to get his militants to live that way at that moment. And it just made Posadism, uh, a Trotskyist cadre look a lot like the new age cults and new religious movements. And there was other, they weren't the only ones. There were other communist movements that new communist movements that looked like new religious movements. Um, uh, Posadism is, is just one. And it's shockingly, there are a lot of these communist cults throughout the seventies. It was just something that was going on. During Did you that ever time. watch that wild, wild country doc? Yeah. yeah. I, um, like when I was watching that, I had like such a different, I had like such a, a weird sort of like yearning reaction for like a functional commune. <laughs> it always devolves though. Um, 
Yeah, it's interesting that so many people have that reaction because I I would not want to be <laughs> in a community like that. Um, I mean, it is cool. That, not like, like that one, but like a functional was, one, you know what I mean? <laughs> sure. And there were, like, the, the story is that the communes were all you know, brainwashed hippies who did too much acid and nothing worked. Like this was this, this is the story you get from, uh, um, that Adam Curtis mm. documentary, all, all washed over by machines of love right. and grace or whatever. Uh, and it's not really that simple. You know, you could say on the whole back to the land was a failure and it didn't have like the right politics, but a lot of the communes did survive and still survived. And a lot of them weren't just about, uh, having a, a strange sect or cadre, um, and they they did have connections to the cities and like the Black Panthers, for example, basically became one of these movements with a theory of intercommunalism, and it had its pros and its cons, but it lasted for over a decade. So it's not such a simple story that just commune equals cult equals you know or cadre organization equals cult equals commune. Uh, uh, and I, I, I wish I could talk more about like the positive things about um, the the cadre commune form, but yeah. you don't really get a lot of that in the Posada story. <laughs> well, some something that really uh, seems to jump out about this like formation that we keep seeing is, you know, um, there's always this return to the cult of the personality and there's something going on between like, um, you know, how, how, how can you be an anarchist and then also think that you can start a, a an organization with yourself at the head and, you know, looking at Posadas, um, his ideals and then, the way that he acted was something that to me clarified a lot of like my issues with um, uh, idealism and just like a lot of the issues here of all cult endeavors are that idealism is what people show up for. And then the reality of it is that there are these personalities that, that need to be structured if we are going to make a, a, an actual communism. Yeah, it, it, he consciously became an idealist at one point, uh, where he he told his his base like it's no longer um, society structuring ideology; it's the other way around now. Because he thought that since the Russian Revolution, since the Chinese Revolution, the masses of the world were just already socialist and communist, and we just had to get rid of the structures of society for those ideas to really take hold and to rebuild the world. So he was literally an idealist and i think that uh I, I try to draw out how that is something that's just happened to the revolutionary left mm -hmm. in general because we lost that social base uh of the early 20th century where there were millions of workers in revolutionary organizations willing to fight um and we don't have that anymore and i think part of what we need to do uh if if we want to rethink what revolution would look like today is to understand that we don't have that anymore. So we can't we can't just say, well, what we need to do is what this group did at this time. Like it's it, it's over, you know. So not that we can't draw lessons uh, from the Bolsheviks or or whoever, but uh, we're we're living in a really different world, and the way class is composed is is much different. 
Um, so things have to be rethought, essentially. And, exa- and, and the way to rethink it is, is counter to idealism, counter to this, the, 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 the idea that like the way the organization is structured is, uh, and, and having the right line is what's going to be the vanguard. That's just so not this, true. This anymore. might feel out of left field for, for both you guys. I don't know, but, um, uh, what do you guys think about the current discourse around small businesses? Um, to, to, to me, like given, um, I, we're at like the end of the episode, and I, and I don't mean to like come off the book or whatever, but um, I do really, really enjoy dis- discussing strategy. Uh, so this this perked my interest. But um, with with like with COVID happening and and the the even like the concept of the small business just being like decimated, um, it it feels like um, that that could be um potentially uh um better conditions for organizing if like suddenly everybody is some sort of uber worker maybe taking on this one company will will be more unifying or something yeah well i think whether that's better or, right. or worse like that's just what right. we're headed towards and small business small businesses are probably better in some ways and worse in in other ways but uh, realistically, capitalism has a tendency to centralize, and we're gonna. It's it's far more likely we're gonna see an extreme centralization um, in the short term than than something else. You know, so uh, regardless of how we feel about small businesses, they're the the middle class, the petty bourgeois is a transitional class that are going to ascend or descend. And it seems like they're pretty doomed. But, you know, as as they die, there are a lot of morbid symptoms. And I think part of what we're seeing, one of those symptoms now is this, uh, these reopen protests, mm-hmm. um, usually led yeah. by small business owners, like the one in Staten Island. I actually went there yesterday. I'm going to oh, write something awesome about to it. Hear. <laughs> um, they, they are explicitly organizing as small business owners telling other small business owners to defy the lockdown and reopen, you know, that this is their like revolutionary struggle is, uh, is just opening their businesses so they can make more money. And it, to, to their credit, they say like, look, we hire all the workers. So uh, the, the workers are screwed without us. And that's true to an extent, but it's obvious that the small business owners have fundamentally different interests than the workers even though they are their fates are locked together uh the workers i think would rather stay at home and just be paid <laughs> to stay at home than be than have to risk going to work um and as long as that's not on the table yeah maybe they'll may there there will be this connection between workers and the small business uh ideology but what but that always leads to a very bad place you know trumpism right. is like the cultural aesthetics of small business owners um, putting putting itself off as the working class, as blue collar culture, and mm, mom and pop, yeah, mom and pop landlords <laughs> is thrown around so much, and it pisses me off. <laughs> right. So I, I think like landlords, yeah, are often small business owners as well, and um, like this, the struggle needs to be against uh, rentierism. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe maybe not specifically against the the, the small uh, businesses, but obviously 
the the interests of the working class are different than that of the small business owners. Yeah, I, this is all making me think of um, what I was experiencing when I was uh, in working with the Sunset Park Tenants Union, and um, we were we were trying to find people who needed help <laughs> without contacting them directly because we live in a deadly uh, pandemic now. But um, yeah, we were putting up flyers and um, we were saying, you know, that a rent strike is better than uh, having uh, to choose between, you know, losing everything and not being able to make food and just giving your money over to someone. And then there was a, a man who like uh, chased us down the street as we were flyering and he's like, hey, hey, what about the landlords? You know, aren't we in this together? Landlords are people too. And there was just never a moment where uh, we could impress upon this person. Like, yes, you are also people and we should be fighting together to get rent canceled because there's a government that could theoretically take care of this for us. Right. Yeah, yeah. We are in it together in the sense that like, we have to pay rent to you. So there is a relationship there that is adversarial within the broader adversarial relationship to the state. Yeah, but they're <laughs> also getting squeezed for something else, which is why they want the rent at a certain point. There's a chain that it's not like, oh, I just got 100% of your rent and I'm enjoying myself. It's like, well, you it's, know. It, I've been thinking about how it's like the the city budgets are like um, really, really reliant on the... Um, the property taxes. So it's like, I'm almost like paying for my Medicaid <laughs> through <laughs> my landlord and then my landlord paying the city <laughs> or something. Yeah. That, that's yeah. a huge part of it too, is like uh, the, the city, you know, the state, the city are really in trouble mm -hmm. financially and the way that they can hold on to some of that tax base is by making sure people don't leave and, and property values stay high so they can keep yeah. the tax, uh, they can keep collecting taxes. And, you know, to do that, they really do need to, for example, like this is why de Blasio is uh, so supportive of the NYPD. It's not because he's being blackmailed or something like that. It's because he, he's worried that rich people are going to leave the city and property values will fall. And so the, the police need to be uh, kept happy so they can keep cracking down on on uh, quality of life issues. I mean, at a certain point, here's my my conspiracy brain about it. Um, the uh, the the um, proposal to tax the rich has been, you know, completely in their uh, line of eyesight. They can't look away. Like the amount of uh, attention going to this campaign. Um, that they're just like turning their head, like like Cuomo did a thing where he like I went I I tried to go to Long Island and ask them if if uh, we could raise their taxes and they said no so I guess that's that or whatever. Um, there are like other other proposals being um, flo floated around, but it's like then you see, um, like so it's like to me he like still could be like this under this like veiled threat. I mean, I'm, but I, I know that's like giving him any credit at all and he's just a total rube idiot uh but there's like something unspoken going on i feel like that like we can't even get like 
a temporary tax on the money made during the pandemic or whatever, you know, these extremely modest things. Yeah, or they, they talk about a regressive tax, like raising subway the packages astronomically. Yeah, exactly. Putting taxes on the packages, which is going to make mi- middle class people will be like, oh, good. You know, they'll, they'll like they can afford it and they think it's cool, but you're just it's, it's a regressive tax. And that's the only thing that's possible, which, which is yeah, which is completely wild. Um, yeah, I, I, I was also wondering if if you'd followed like early on in the pandemic, like a lot of like French anarchists and I think like other anarchists were like kind of um, putting out this, the, the anti-mask line, the like, um, it, like it, it felt very in line with a lot of these like Staten Islander types um, to me. Like there's it, the, the parallels I've talked about this on our in labor a little bit, but like, yeah, the, the parallels to like sort of like the yellow vest, the more right wing end of the yellow vest people and the um, people in Staten Island is, are, is really interesting to me. And I'm wondering if you're going to be writing about some of that stuff. Uh, yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I think are you talking about a guy. I don't know all the names, but <laughs> okay. Is it, yeah. Like, I haven't seen a lot of like specifically anti-mask or COVID yeah. denial stuff. I mean, yeah, Giorgio Agamben was really into the biopolitics of the mask, though. Yeah, I mean, he wrote that essay early on that COVID is just the flu. Um, so obviously he was wrong about that. But I do think there is, I think we can all agree that we need to be skeptical of how the state and how capital is going to use this crisis to entrench itself to have uh, way more power. You know, I don't think it's good. I don't think it would be good if we had an app that tracks everybody like they do in China. I don't think that there should be uh, those Amazon security cameras that make sure workers stay six feet away from each other. You know, I understand that like there are public health concerns. And if, if I, if I uh, am against that kind of technology, maybe I sound like the bar owner in Staten Island who says, uh, like eating at a restaurant isn't really where COVID gets spread or whatever, um, and puts himself against public health. But you do have to be critical of how how this stuff gets rolled out. And you know, in the United States, we can't really get too deep into this this question because there isn't any like mask law yeah. or like the the locked the lockdowns are so ineffective and so like people voluntary. don't get i feel like that we never really actually had a lockdown <laughs> yeah well like closing the restaurants you know uh i'm not gonna i don't feel motive like there are very very few small businesses restaurants whatever that i would be the least bit sad about if they close so it's just not an issue that motivates me at all um so, so yeah, like that's that's really where the the lockdown. That's what we could protest is like restaurants closing, gyms closing, and I just don't care about that. So this it's an important like question about um, how to be anti-authoritarian in a time of a public mm-hmm. health crisis. That's a really good question, and we kind of haven't really faced any anything to really test that yet. You know, like uh, the. The vaccine stuff is is really where it's headed, I think, like anti-vax thought and whether people are going to be mandated to get it or kids are going to be mandated to get it. 
that's, I think, where it's going to really pop off in the next yeah, year. Yeah, I, de- I definitely agree with you. And, I, and I, yeah, I'm in a very similar mode of thinking. I think this crisis has made me um, more sympathetic to the authoritarian position than I ever have been in my life. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, to, to, to close out, like, um, I just wanted, oh, sorry. Whoa. I mean, we're at <laughs> an hour. Should we not? <laughs> oh, uh, I just think it's crazy to close out on saying I sympathize with authoritarianism. No, 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 I'm not. I, 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 let's go for like a little, a little while longer. I, I, I wanted to talk, I wanted to make sure that, um, Andy got a chance to talk about like work that he's doing, um, uh, with Woodbine and anything else like you're working on in addition to um, this essay about the Long Islanders. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it's on that authoritarian tip. Like, I I think it, I, I'm not against authority if it's legitimate. And if the CDC were a legitimate institution and uh, they said everyone needs to be vaccinated, then I think people would just be vaccinated. I I think like, the resistance to it is because nobody trusts right. the government and they kind of yeah. shouldn't. So we're in a kind of an impasse here where um, these people who are not anti-authoritarian, like a lot of them are like some kind of weird new age fascist uh, are against the, this, this kind of authority. Um, and uh, we're kind of all in the same boat, I guess, is, is that we need, we need new institutions that people trust and people feel a part of and people have to care about one another uh fundamentally to say like i i know that there are some risks to taking a vaccine but i will do it because i don't want my elderly neighbors to die or something and oh, we're just so, absolutely we're just so I mean, far off from that but that yeah, we can't even yeah, talk about authority or authoritarianism exactly i mean this is the kind of thing that i just feel like is dipping back into idealism where we just imagine that there's an authority that somehow is above corruption which is not we don't live that this way we have pfizer coming out with vaccines that are apparently now giving people horrible allergic reactions and they're pushing it anyway and people are clamoring to stockpile them and we live in a country that's just basically gutting itself because we're in an end stage of empire. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean that I'm sympathetic to the United States authority. I'm sympathetic to a theoretical authority that doesn't exist here at all. <laughs> that's all I, mean, I meant. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's, I think, like, what we do when we talk about revolutionary politics is, like, what kind of authority would be just and make sense? Mm. Uh, not necessarily authority specifically, but, like... Um, I think if you live in a, a commune, for example, there is the commune itself produces a kind of authority uh, that uh, that would be good, like a, you know, a good and legitimate. Um, and liberal democracy attempts to do that, uh, but it's breaking mm-hmm. down. It's breaking down really, really badly. And it was never really legitimate, you know. If you're a revolu- if you're against the United States or liberal democracy in general, it was never legitimate. But really. Very few people see it as legitimate now, and this is something that's going to have to be resolved. That's why everyone is like fantasizing about civil wars because, like, that seems like something that could resolve it, even though it's not really. On I'm, the table. I'm fantasizing of uh, uh, like I'm getting a little in, into tanky brain territory. Is is my issue? I think is like. Well, China is, <laughs> uh, you know, you, uh, do you think the the Communist Party of China is? No, legitimate? I mean I don't necessarily you know, think it's, it's legitimate, but I get so when I think about the vaccine stuff, um, I I 
often think about like the the vaccine that China is developing and how that is going to reach places that um, all the the bullshit that we're developing here isn't going to touch, like rural India or like um, different different parts of the world that um, uh, just like you know we're like our country has completely broken off with. Um, the World Health Organization, whereas like China has agreed to like develop a, a vaccine for for the poor, and it's like you know, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I trust it either. Um, but it's just like, it's like a, is it, it's, de- it's working better than uh, whatever they're doing is working better than us. That's for that I know for sure. <laughs> yeah, but when I when I talk about legitimacy, I'm not just talking about like whether it's technocratically capable or uh efficient or whatever it's um it's like what are what are the goals of of china of the chinese state and what are the goals of like you know marxist revolutionaries they're not the same they're just so that's that's i think where legitimacy the way i'm talking about it needs to be attached to some political project or vision uh so we don't just think that like well china solved this problem um, so maybe they're better than us or they have like, uh, they, they have like a better yeah, model. Yeah, it can't, it can't end there. Uh, I absolutely agree. Right. Um, but yeah, what else um, are you, have you been up to? Well, yeah, I, I do want to p- plug Woodbine before we go too long. Um, Woodbine is a social center in uh, Ridgewood, Queens, where we have a food pantry. So that's kind of all I've been doing over the pandemic is helping out with this food pantry. We give out food two days a week. On Wednesday and Friday, we have a community fridge. We have like a mask sewing workshop. Uh, so we, we give out masks to people in the line. We're trying to start ESL courses and, you know, do other projects, like whatever we can figure out to do um, that's safe and, uh, you know, helps us get to know our neighbors and, and meet new people. And it's been really fun. Um, and uh, we just got a really big new space. So there's a lot of potential That's there. Great. I got to I see it. To plug, uh, yeah, I wanted to plug the fundraiser at gofundme.com slash F slash woodbine dash moving dash fundraiser. Um, if you just search woodbine, I'll definitely post it in the uh, links. Should, Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And so you can chip in some money there or just come by and help out with the food pantry. We need people to help pack and give out the food. And uh, you can just find us online and get in touch or, you know, talk to me on Twitter. And uh, yeah, if you live in the neighborhood, uh, the, it would be, uh, it's always good to meet some new people and we always need a little bit more. That's help. awesome. And hopefully we, we, we talked about like maybe linking up a bit with the Ridgewood Tenants Union eviction defense. I'll, I'll bring you a stack of flyers and help out sometime. Absolutely. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking with us. I'm a you know big fan of the Antifada as well. Um, people definitely need to be checking out that show if they haven't already. I think we've talked about it on our show before because it's, yeah, it's really good. Yeah, thanks. For that. It was really fun. But yeah, um, thank you so much. I guess we should close out there. Bye, everyone. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. Lots of fun.